Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. I'm here with Professor Michael Ungar. He's a family therapist, Professor of Social Work at the Canada Research Chair in the Child and Family Community Resilience Group at Dalhousie University, also the founder and director of the Resilience Research Centre. He's a blogger on Psychology Today. He's a best-selling author. Thank you. Um, you've got lots of stuff going on, Michael, and you gave a great keynote yesterday on diagnosing resilience. And it was interesting for a lot of people in the audience and online because you've got a a, a kind of description, a concept of resilience that doesn't necessarily fit with what we necessarily know or think we know. So what, what is resilience? Yeah, well, the most common definition of resilience is that idea of, you know, personally bouncing back or I get over the, the problems. And that notion of being this kind of rugged individual or invulnerable has actually been challenged mostly by the science. And what we actually see is that it's actually more resourced individuals instead of rugged individuals that overall show more patterns of resilience. So I, I like to think of resilience not, not just as individual, individually overcoming adversity, but it's much more about our ability to navigate to the resources we need to do well, but also to be able to negotiate for those resources to be given to us in ways that, that we find meaningful. And if you begin to think about resilience less as an internal trait, which is really, really hard to change in people, and much more as something that, that the external world, the world around us, can actually seed and build, then there's a tremendous hope because suddenly you realize that you can actually, well, uh, our environments, our families, our schools, our communities, our employers, uh, can make us resilient. They can actually give us what we need in ways that will get us through a crisis. And there's so much evidence of this, whether you're talking about like post-disaster, like a major flood or fire, or if you're just talking about post-mental illness or in, in the throes of a mental illness, a lot of what brings us through that is, of course, yes, it's positive thinking and its ability to attach and having, you know, uh, uh, you know, not to catastrophize and all those kinds of things. But fundamentally, a lot of the things that trigger those reactions in us are external. So if we have stable housing, if we have uh, opportunity for a job, connections in our community, if we have opportunities to show our talents and indeed the stability around us, to, to get us through a crisis. I mean, that's why post after we lose someone special to us, um, many cultures have these kinds of, you know, you, you sit for a period of time, you hold a, uh, a wake, you, you do something that helps the grieving process and, and your recovery. And these are all, it's not just that you change your mind or that you get over the grief. Cognitively or intellectually, what you're actually doing is you're swimming inside a matrix of resources and relationships that bring you through that crisis and help you recover back to a previous state of functioning. And you work a lot with young people who have a great deal of adversity in their lives, complex trauma, um, poverty, yeah. discrimination. So how does this apply to that population in your work? Well, in those cases, it's, you know, the, 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 the odds are stacked so much against those, those youth, whether it's a, you know, a refugee youth, or an immigrant youth, or a child living in poverty, etc., and what I've actually found is that when you, you shift this conversation, two things become evident. One, that kids often survive in those situations using very maladaptive, potentially dangerous behaviors so that they will you know, find somewhere powerful to be, feel, you know, maintain their self-esteem, feel a sense of efficacy or power. And, and the way they find those things can be very dysfunctional or appear to be dysfunctional to the outsider. So what I've actually discovered through my clinical work and indeed my research is that if you offer those children a, a, an alternative pathway, a substitute that is more socially desirable, they often accept that invitation 
Um, but it's about providing them with other resources. So a, a child who can't learn in school in a traditional classroom suddenly is offered a, 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 an alternative classroom that's tailored to their high levels of anxiety, where the social pressures are minimized. And suddenly they're flourishing in terms of their, you know, they're, they're, they're less under stress in that one area. Now, did they change their thinking about learning? Uh, yes, but it, it was actually triggered by a change of the physical environment in which they are being asked to learn and the tasks that they've been given and the, the kind of teacher that they get and this type of thing. So it's this dynamic interplay between what we have and what we're given um, that ultimately, if, if you get the right balance in it, it, it makes you much more resilient. So I, you know, I often say to people, if they're really stressed on the job or something like that, well, you could change jobs, but a lot of us don't have that option of doing that. So then on the job, it's about finding uh, some role, maybe in the workplace, uh, where you feel good about the contribution you're actually going to make. And it might not be related directly to your job. Your job. It might be something like you're the person who remembers everyone's birthday on the job site, and you're the one who brings the cake in or something like that. Or, um, or maybe it's not even on the job site. You, you know, your job really sucks. You're really under a lot of stress, but you come home to a situation where your family is stable, or you volunteer in your community and coach uh, some sort of, you know, some sort of uh, soccer or football or whatever, and suddenly you're, you're in another zone that reinforces to you that, in fact, you're valued and you matter and you have positive relationships and you have all the bedrock things that make us more resilient. But those things are, in a sense, you navigate to those somewhere in your life and you negotiate so that people give those to you in ways that make sense. So internal grit, fortitude, uh, positive thinking, absolutely important. But boy, that's so much easier to do when you're swimming in environments that give you opportunities to express that in ways that will actually reinforce your capacity to cope when the next big stress happens in your life. Yeah. And finally... I guess what's happened in the US a lot recently and here in the UK as well is that we've, we've um, as, a, as a culture, we've demonized young people from these backgrounds. We've um, you know, been very aggressive towards them in the media. Um, but your work seems to say that we can learn a huge amount from, from young people who have these adverse experiences. So what would you say to health professionals and to researchers who find it very difficult and challenging to work with these people? I always say um, uh, in the work that I do, I'm, I'm really emphasizing, ask about the, 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 the risk factors that they've been exposed to. There's a catchy phrase of, you know, it's not what you are, it's, what you, what's, it's not what, you know, basically what you are, how you're behaving, it's, it's what's happened to you. And often if, you, if, you spent, if we spent more time assessing the risks that people are exposed to and that some of those triggers in their lives and how those are triggering both, um, even at the genetic level, that, you know, you're your sort of your genetic epigenome, those levels, your neurological reactions, your behavioral reactions, um, these are all often tied to those you know, past exposures. And I think it humanizes us. It reminds us that sometimes a child is acting in a particular way, um, you know, joined a gang, is, 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 is involved in something quite extreme in the community. Those are often traceable back to some experience of trauma or... Uh, not to excuse it, but to sort of say it's more understandable. And then from that understanding, of course, we can also tailor the interventions. Because often children are using those very troubling behaviors to find things that nobody else has given them access to. And as a, you know, a scientist of resilience, I'm often looking for new pathways, or, or I'm always looking for the kids who break those patterns ask them how they broke the pattern, and they often say, well, they were inspired by a particular relationship or a particular opportunity, 
or a particular funding scheme or a particular um, something gave them a pathway out of that negative and into something positive. Um, and that, so I'm, I, you know, I, I think if you, the more of these children you talk to, the more hopeful I've become to say all children have a pathway out of those negative behaviors. But it does take a very good environment, a, a community of concern, families of concern, schools of concern, um, to, to document and figure out what it is a child actually needs. It's a really enlightening perspective. Thank you so much for talking to me. I'm great, really glad that MQ got you to do the keynote. It, yeah, it's, it's been a brilliant experience and, and so neat to also network with many other fascinating uh, researchers and indeed people uh, who are working on the front lines of and, and people who are in the system as, as well and, and to learn from them. So thanks for the opportunity. All the best.